it's not a horror movie. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel very strongly that she would love it. All right. So your job next week when you're recording Love is to push Midsommar. (laughs) That can be the next (laughs) rom-com. Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your uh, bi-weekly hosts, uh, Pete Romberg, and this week I am uh, an inhabitant on a growing and productive island, uh, as I believe all of us are these days, uh, because we are all playing Animal Crossing. Uh, Joining me, as always, is my co-host... Uh, Martha Sullivan, and I'm feeling a little bitter because my intro name was going to be Virtual Farmer. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Although I did, I did just find an excuse to pick up Fire Emblem for the fourth time. <laughs> um, so, so you're pausing Animal Crossing to be playing Fire Emblem? Uh, you say that like I can't be allotting time in the day to do both. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, we were just no, talking... I just... I just picked up the DLC for Fire Emblem, so there's like a whole other section now that I get to play. And the story itself is built with four different paths that you can take anyway, mm-hmm. so th- this is, yeah, it's it's just feeding, feeding the obsession. <laughs> nice. Uh, we were just talking about how, like, theoretically we should all have total emptiness on our social calendars, but through all the various virtual hangouts that we're doing, we're kind of more busy than we would be normally. Um, so kudos to you for being able to play two uh, in- involved video games at the same time. Well, also, a lot of my social interaction right now is coming from video games. Sure. So, like... I hang out on other people's islands. There was a there's an article I don't remember if it was in BuzzFeed or HuffPo about a couple who had to postpone their wedding so they had a a little wedding ceremony Ooh, in Animal Crossing. That's adorable. Which was like the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, the um the guy surprised his fiance with it. He was like, "Come over to my island. I've got like crazy turnip prices or whatever." So she came and he'd like set up this little rose petal pathway and all of their friends were there in game and it was just extremely cute. Oh my God, that's amazing. Uh, well, good. I'm, I'm glad that there was some good coming out of uh, all of this. <laughs> um, well, speaking of all of this, uh, we're recording on April 5th of 2020, so we are uh, not even yet at peak coronavirus um, impact. Uh So because of that, today we're going to be talking about pandemic media. We've got two homework assignments we're going to be talking about, the 2011 film Contagion and the 2000 and 18. I think it's 18, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 2018 book, uh, Kingdom of Needle and Bone. But before we get into those, we're going to uh, talk about what is stuck in our head this week. Um... Now, obviously, what is actually stuck in both of our heads this week is Animal Crossing, so we've decided to not talk about that and instead uh, talk about something else. So, Martha, how about you start? Uh, so, I have been extremely jealous of all of the people who've been talking about, like, all of the stuff they've been watching since being in isolation, because, as I said last episode, I've had, like, zero concentration to do anything 
Um, and watching Contagion was actually the first movie that I had watched since this whole thing started. Oh, wow. Um, but I, the way that I watched it, I had to sign up for a um, one-week trial of Cinemax with my Amazon Prime account. And I was like, well, as long as I have free Cinemax for a week, I may as well see what else is on here. Uh, which, and also because Contagion is a very real and very depressing movie to be watching right now, I kind of wanted something to like take the taste out of my mouth. And mm -hmm. also I remembered how much I really love watching movies, all of which is to say that I followed it up with the 2011 based on a true story movie, The Big Year, uh, directed by David Frankel and starring Steve Martin, Jack Black and Owen Wilson. Uh, this is a, like I said, based on a true story about three competitive bird watchers all competing uh, to have something called the big year, which is a real contest in North American bird watching for the person who can see the most birds in a calendar year. Mm. Um, it is wild. It was delightful. <laughs> um, but the fact that this is a real thing that people spend thousands of dollars and months of time, because you have to, you it's you have to stay in North America, so it's not like you can bug off to China or whatever and see all of their birds and sure. have that count. Sure. Um, but these bird watchers will go like they they make a big deal out of um, going to the island, the Alaskan island of A2 in May. A2 is the furthest west point of the of North America that you can go and still be on like technically North America. Mm -hmm. So it's closer to Japan and Russia than it is to the continental United States and is a place where you like these bird watchers can sometimes see birds from um, Asia and Europe that get blown off their migratory patterns. Oh, sure. <laughs> lost, so lost birds, lost Asian birds. Yeah, it's this tiny little Alaskan island that every year sees like 50 plus bird watchers who all come in the month of May, hoping to catch a glimpse of these <laughs> like extremely rare birds. Yeah, the movie, I thought it was very sweet. Um, I really like Jack Black and Steve Martin. I'm whatever on Owen Wilson. He kind of very much depends on his role, but I thought it was um, kind of the perfect antidote to all of the things I've been feeling right now. It has a lot of really great travel scenes. Um, people can hang out in groups without feeling like they're ruining their lives. Um, um, I, it is insane to me that this is a, a movie that came out 10 years ago starring, as I said, Jack Black, Steve Martin, Owen Wilson, like big name actors. I have never heard of this movie. And if you were to just tell me about it, and I had not looked it up, I would be like, you made that movie up. That's not a real movie. Oh, no, it's wonderful. I actually <laughs> just checked, I just checked the audiobook out of the book that it's based on. Um, the book is a, a journalistic book, so the, the guy who wrote it is not one of the bird watchers, but he, um, like, followed them during this year and blogged about them, I think. So, like, mm. he, the journalist, shows up as a character in the movie who runs, like, a bird watching blog. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to listening to that as my nonfiction book for April. Um, and yeah, I just found it to be a really lovely, uh, experience. Plus David Frankel directed the devil wears Prada, which is uh, sure. fabulous. 
Um, nice. Um, yeah. yeah, cool. Well, uh, what is stuck in my head this week? I, I was debating between a couple, but I am also going to settle on a movie. Um, last night I watched Onward, the most recent Pixar movie. Uh, it's about a couple brothers who live in a fantasy world. They got elves and trolls and manticores and stuff, but it's all been modernized. So basically it's office buildings and uh, Chuck E. Cheese style restaurants and cars and whatnot being inhabited by these fancy creatures um they go on a quest to try to uh revive their dad who died years ago um and it was delightful it's not top tier pixar uh, it's you know it's mid-tier pixar um but it's it's still a lot of fun it's especially fun for all the um production design and the uh fantasy tropes involved uh, lots of D D tropes and whatnot uh one of my bigger complaints is it's very much like a 1980s version of fantasy and of D D. Um, you've got uh, Chris Pratt, the older brother. Uh, you know, looks like he's a 1980s version of uh, a D and D guy. Like, got the the spray painted van, got the denim vest with the ACDC stickers on it, um, all the rest of it. So uh, it's very much that stereotype um, rather than a more modern interpretation, which I kind of would have appreciated. But in general, it's it's good fun. Uh, A-plus production design, uh, Chris Pratt and um, uh, Tom Holland play the two uh, brothers. Um, it, it's free on Disney+, Plus, so that, that was the best way to watch it. So the only thing that is um, kind of bumming me out about Onward is that they so dis so Pixar straight up stole the art that is airbrushed on the side of Chris Pratt's character's van. Yeah, I did read about that uh, on the wiki, which, <laughs> which is... is a super <laughs> yeah. super bummer. Yeah, in a huge way. Um, because well, they have top tier artists. They should not need to be stealing people's art. Right, and they also have um, uh, infinite money, so they should be paying yes. for art that they uh, you know use. They could at least have been like, here, here's 10 grand. We're going to use your art and credit you right. for free. It's like that That would not have been hard. So that's a bummer. Also, I'm very ishy on supporting Chris Pratt right now. Um, hmm. But I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I, I did not really know what kind of to make of Onward when I saw the trailers for it, but I'm glad to hear that it's fun. Yeah, so like I, I would say... Um... Based on the trailer, this is no spoiler. Uh, their dad dies and gives them a, like, when when Tom Holland turns 16, gets a wizard staff and a spell from his dad to bring him back for one day. Um, the spell goes awry, so they only bring back his legs, um, which are now just walking around without a torso. Uh, and there's, there's a fair number of very good sight gags based on just that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was fun. It was a absolute low... Like, low investment, low stakes, good mid-tier Pixar movie um, that d doesn't hit the height of, like, what Pixar does at its best, but is certainly, you know, a thoroughly enjoyable way to spend an hour and 50 minutes or whatever, however long it is. Not even two hours, so. Is it free on Disney Plus? It is free on Disney Plus. Okay. So, yeah, the, for, the, for the low, low cost of free, uh, if you have a Disney Plus subscription, um, you know, might as well do that. <laughs> Yeah, I feel much better about that than I feel about paying like 20 bucks or whatever to rent like Emma or the Invisible Man movies, which I 
probably would have gone to see in the movie theater if that was a possibility um and now feel all kinds of ways about the uh production companies charging me the same that i would pay to go see it in the theater Mm -hmm. knowing that no movie theater is going to profit off of my uh right price for that yeah i'd like if i'm if I'm already paying for Disney Plus, like, that's much easier. <laughs> right, yeah, like, our, both of our takeaways when we finished Onward was like, well, probably wouldn't have gone seen that in the theater. Definitely happy to have, you know, watched it for free here. Fair uh, enough. Yeah. All right, so uh, that has been what is stuck in our head. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about our pandemic media. Right, welcome back. So today we are talking about uh, two pieces of homework, 2011's uh, uh, Steven Soderbergh movie Contagion and the 2018 Mira Grant short novel, novella. Uh, novella. Novella, great. Kingdom of Needle and Bone. Uh, we're going to start with Contagion because that sort of, that deals with just the immediate initial crisis. Um, Kingdom of Needle and Bone includes that, but then continues farther into the post-pandemic future Um, So for chronological reasons, we're going to go with Contagion first. Uh, That was my homework assignment. Um, This is a 2011 Steven Soderbergh movie with an absolutely insane ensemble cast. We've got uh, Marion Cotillard, who's billed first, which is crazy. Uh, Matt Damon, Lawrence Fishburne, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Winslet, Bryan Cranston, uh, and many, many others. Um, Side note. Until you get to Brian Cranston, they were all alphabetical, so that may have been when Marion Cotillard was first. Yes, they were doing, um, it looked in the billing like they were doing alphabetical by tiers, uh, where you've got like your top tier, your middle tier, your third tier, because uh, it looked like there were clusters of alphabeticalness. Um, because that's something I pay attention to and care about. Uh, so, well, so it... does Brian Cranston, clearly. <laughs> womp, womp, womp. Um, Sorry, that was not fair to one of my two TV dads, who both are who both appear in this movie. <laughs> Who's your other TV dad? Lawrence Fishburne. What's he a TV dad in? Oh, oh, I, I guess not everybody continues to be as obsessed with Hannibal as I am. Oh, right. Yeah, no, that's fair. Uh, um, Contagion is about a uh, pandemic outbreak that begins in China. Uh, and is transported uh, very quickly around the world. It has an enormous fatality rate. They were saying something like 30% of people infected die. Uh, it has a fairly high r not score, which is its rate of in of uh, infection. Um, this movie introduces terms like r not score and social distancing, uh, terms that we are now deeply familiar with, but when they came out in 2011 was fairly new. Um, and like a lot of other Soderbergh films, it is uh, structured in, in what's known as hyperlink cinema style, uh, a phrase that I just learned upon watching this movie, um, where it's multiple unrelated stories, all connected to a larger 
issue, but like with no actual overlap. So Jude Law plays the um, uh, conspiracy theorist blogger uh, who nowadays is represented by the entire right-wing media apparatus. Um, and he has no interaction with almost any of the other main characters, uh, but his actions have consequences for the other main characters. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Even watching it now, uh, there were moments uh, where uh, there were just throwaway lines and I kind of had to uh, laugh sadly. Things like uh, Congress is figuring out ways to uh, have, uh, you know, uh, uh, votes uh, not in person, like telecommuting for Congress, which our Congress has not figured out. Um, there's just a, a general sense of... Uh, functioning federal government in this movie which i appreciated in a dark way um but also it was almost nice because this virus um in the movie is so much more deadly and so much worse than um covid so in a way it was nice seeing something even worse uh rather than just whatever is happening now uh, yeah, Martha, curious on your thoughts on this one, especially since it was the first movie you'd watched, basically, since this all has begun. Oh, no, I thought it was great. Um, there were a couple things that struck me about it. One, ooh, Jude Law. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, man. Yes. Um, he's terrible. Uh, and it's, it's very much a, like... I, I, I had not... So there's a scene in it where he... I I read a review that said that he's faking his symptoms. He's faking his symptoms. Okay, I didn't quite grok to that. So I, I was guessing that's what he was doing, and then later in the movie there's a throwaway line about how his his blood, like they do a blood test on him and it doesn't show any, um, uh, it, like his immune system has never come in contact with this disease. Uh, yeah, so what, so what happens is he fakes symptoms in order to quote unquote prove that a homeopathic remedy is viable for treating this disease, uh, which it is not. Um, the way that I had read that was that he just had like some cold mm -hmm. that he used. So like, I, I didn't, I didn't quite understand that he was wholly faking being sick. I just thought that he didn't actually have, um, the MEV well, and, virus. And then did you pick up that he was, uh, he had financial interests in the homeopathic remedy? Yeah, no, I got yeah. all that. I just, I didn't realize his deception was quite <laughs> as Monstrous. horrifying. No, that was, yeah, that was the part where I was like, oh no, you're a monster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Again, but, he, he's uh, the Alex Jones, you know? Yeah. Um, a couple of things that really stood out to me. One, um, I guess as a result of the disease burning extremely fast, we go from zero to riots in like three weeks. Yeah. Like, I, I thought that it was a, a tremendously fast move. Um, but I, I also think that there's an, an argument to be made that because the virus the virus itself moves so fast that like the, the world kind of becomes a little bit paralyzed. It's like we have people working on a vaccine, but realistically, um, you know, the, the, the length of time it takes to like 
get the vaccine and do human trials and all of that, like how many people are, are dying because the virus is so hot. Right. Like, I, I guess that can be the argument there that is made for why society crumbles as totally and completely as it does. Mm-hmm. Um, although that all also, that made me feel a little bit better about our current state because I, in, in a lot of ways, I feel like, where our so in i'm sorry my words are all over the place today so in contagion we we see society falling down and the government stepping up in ways that we are not seeing in our situation right now right now it feels like our government is falling down but society is stepping up in ways that were not reflected in the movie Mm -hmm. like people making masks to share with hospitals and like all all of the ways that we have we are kind of helping each other because the government is not. Um, so uh, I, I was thinking about this exact same thing. Um, Cory Doctoro, who's a sci-fi writer, tech writer, um, blogger, uh, has uh, had an article a couple of weeks ago, sort of when this was all beginning, about how Hollywood loves to use crises uh, like, like this or like, you know, natural disasters to show a collapse of society and sort of a return to a Hobbesian worldview of all against all. When often what happens during a crisis moment is the opposite. Instead of us all collapsing into like an all against all fight for resources, people really do come together and create a sense of community to try to help each other out. Obviously, this isn't a all the time situation. Um, and the the most wealthy tend to be the least likely to to do this and are most likely to become sort of a, a winner take all mindset during crises. Um, but in general, overall, most people do sort of come together in moments of crisis, which we are, like you said, we're seeing now. Um, and which wasn't uh, so much in the movie. Um, I also, I found a couple of articles, one that was written, um, one that was published on NPR and written this year, um, about kind of comparing contagion to what we are going through right now. And then one that was written back when the movie came out in 2011, both kind of fact checking the science of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was impressed because both of them were basically like a lot of this is true. Like a lot of this, particularly in how the, in how the movie portrays reaction, like CDC, um, involvement and actions or response actions to what is happening all seem to be pretty accurate. The one thing that both of the articles kind of brought up was um, the speed at which the virus works. Mm-hmm. Like, cause in once at, by the end of the movie, we are shown kind of the, the minutes between the virus uh, infecting Gwyneth Paltrow and her starting to spread it. And both of the articles were like, it would have needed to incubate for a little bit. Like she wouldn't have been infectious that quickly, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was really interesting. And then also the speed at which they actually get a vaccination. Um, and also the the part of that, that really <laughs> stuck out to me was that the, the scientist who is, um, the point person on creating the vaccine, like she sees it work on one monkey decides that, okay, I can test it on myself and it, I guess works for her. And then that's what pushes it into production and distribution. And I was like, "Hmm, 
I think we're missing some steps here. <laughs> I, I think generously we could say that that was a little bit of a montage situation where we didn't see the rest of it. But I like when she injected herself, I'm just like, huh, okay, whatever. Well, I, I, I don't, I think it is a safe assumption to say that she sees that it works on one of her monkeys and goes directly from there to injecting herself with it. Yeah. And then it directly from there to exposing herself to the virus <laughs> as a means of testing. So it's like, mm, this, this is the part where movie magic is like. Right, right. This is Hollywood. <laughs> Yes. Um, but but mostly because, like, you you kind of need to get that, like, it, it, like, I get why you're doing that for story reasons, right? Like, you need to get to the next oh, stage, yeah. which is, like, the vaccine. Um, but, there, there's only yeah. so much, there's only so much of, like, hopeless riots you can show us before we as a movie audience go, okay. <laughs> like, so, so what's this the fix is, here? This is either an end of the world movie or you're going to show me how we get out of this. Yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, yeah, what did you what did you think of the um like the way that they used real science processes? Processes? Oh, I mean like that that is one of my go-to like every time if I had seen this movie I wanted to see this movie back when it came out, and I just never got around to it. Um, but I definitely remember, like, seeing the trailer and all the rest of it. Uh, and even before all this, I would have been absolutely loving this. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoy the amount of research and, you know, obviously, aside from all the asterisks, um, this is a very well-researched and, and scientifically literate movie. Um, uh, you know, it, it introduced a lot of terms that now we are just using normally, but at the time that this came out were totally unknown. Um, and it, it all felt very real. Um, one... Something that you may not know about me, or maybe you do just based on kind of uh, fiction and literature I make you <laughs> experience for this, for this show. I really love disease fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I love disease nonfiction. Like, like I really, I read The Hot Zone when I was 13, which is <laughs> arguably too, too young to be reading The Hot Zone. Um, but yeah. Um, so like, I, I actually bought this movie at a blockbuster going out of business sale and then just didn't watch it for a long time. And for no real reason other than... <laughs> Not. I just never had the chance, but like this, this movie is super up my alley. alley. Um, what, was this the first time you uh, had seen it? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I, I bought it and then I think it got taken out in one of my many half price book. Sure. Unwatched movie purge purges. Sure. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm extremely fascinated with all of the gory details. I actually wish wish that they had spent a little bit more time on what the virus did. There's a scene where they're autopsying Gwyneth Paltrow's body where they <laughs> open up No, I'm serious. They no. open up her skull yeah. and then something that they see inside her skull skull causes the two sci causes one of the scientists to be like, oh, oh, well, call everybody, back away from the table. And I was like but what are you seeing? It, like they, they mentioned, it's it's encephalitis, so it's like swelling of the brain. Okay, but the way that he, I don't know, the way that he made it sound, it was like, 
is her brain goop? Is this an Ebola situation? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. That's what, fair. what has happened? <laughs> I, I was, um, but that I was... was one of those movies where I was like, I could I could use some more information here. Sure. I was laughing at uh, you talking about the Gwyneth Paltrow scene because um, I watched this with Marin and she also really enjoyed it. But that scene, she was just like, ah, oh, no. Um, one well, thing I do, I mean, they do like peel down her face. Yes. Because <laughs> um, that's a thing that happens. Right. <laughs> um, one thing that I really enjoyed about this, like obviously it's Soderbergh. He's a masterful filmmaker. Every... Uh, every frame of picture, etc. Um, but I appreciate that, like, we're just killing off main characters left and right. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow obviously is, like, dies within the first five minutes of the movie because she's the, um, at least for the U.S., like, the the patient zero. Um, but then, like, Kate Winslet dies 30 minutes into the movie, um, and you kind of think she's going to be so... the main character. I was so bummed about that. Yeah, but also it's like, no, that, that makes sense. Like, she's... She's in the front line. She's most likely well, to get hit by it. Well, and part of you is like, if this had been made by a different person, she might have been one of the first people to get cured. Right. But she's st- still, I mean, her death comes like 45, like there's still a lot of movie left. Right, right. There's by a ton the time of movie she left. dies. So it's like, oh no. Well, and like, oh, Jude... we're not playing games here. Right. And like Jude Law survives through it. Like he's pro- he's going to be tried, but he's like out on bail. So he's, he kind of ends the movie fine. Uh, Marion Cotillard's thread kind of just ends um, because she's had her character arc and there's nothing else to be said there. Um, I, I really like it's oh. all these like disparate stories and some of them just end because that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a movie, but it's not telling it like a traditional movie. It's, it's telling the story of this contagion, not the story of Kate Winslet or Marion Cotillard or whomever. I'm actually, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts about Marion Cotillard's story. Um, she is a a World <laughs> Health Organization. No, she's a she's a World Health Organization employee who's sent to Hong Kong to help like track the or, the origin of the infection and also to see about tracking all of the contagion vectors that kind of spread out from. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, and she ends up being taken hostage by somebody who is holding her hostage in return for when they develop a vaccine, making sure that his little village in China gets, quote unquote, bumped to the front of the line. And so we don't see from her, we don't hear from her for a while. And then um, who finally orchestrates the trade for, a, you know, 100 doses of the vaccine in exchange, exchange for Marion Cotillard, and then we find out that he that they give them placebos, mm-hmm. and her response to that is ostensibly to return to the village. That's what I took it as as like, well. Like we see her, yeah, we see her. Like she finds that out when she's in the airport to go home, and her response is to get up and leave, and then that's the last we see of her. Yeah. So. Do we think that she was going back to the village? Do we think she was just going to let them let them know? Like, what do we think? At, it kind of doesn't matter, right. but also it's like, why, why show this reaction from her? Her if it's not going to be important. It it felt like felt like a weird note to end her story on. So, to in my mind, it it was an okay note to end her story on because what you need to get from it is that she, um, like basically her loyalties have changed, right? Like she, she cares about the village that she's been living in. 
Um, so whether she's going to go just call them or uh, actually go back herself, it kind of doesn't matter. What matters is that she's leaving the WHO basically to return back to this village or, or at least let them know. Um, and I, I think having a scene where she does what we all know she's going to do is sort of an unnecessary scene. Um, that, that being said, uh, Martin had the exact same critique that you did. So I've uh, rehearsed this argument already. Um <laughs> <laughs> It, it's just, it's weird because it is the most open-ended of the stories that we get. So, so like, even, I agree with you, like, we don't get a lot of very specific closure, but most of our characters get closure of some kind. Mm -hmm. Like, Matt Damon's daughter gets to go to fake prom with her newly inoculated boyfriend, which I thought was very cute. Very cute. Listening uh, to an, um, an 80s U2 song, which was a uh, weird cut, but I love that song, so I was okay with it. And so we do we do get a scene, a, la a last scene of him, of Matt Damon looking at Gwyneth Paltrow's photo and just sort of being sad, which was fine. He doesn't ever really get to get to grapple with the fact that she was having an affair, but that really did not matter to like the movie as a whole. Yeah. Um, we see Lawrence Fishburne giving his wife the inoculation and like that's kind of the last scene we seen we see of him. But we also see him um, give uh um, John Hawks's kid and uh, his inoculation. True. Which is like that. that so was we get a, to that see was a very sweet of, moment. Even though it like thoroughly validated what Jude Law was accusing him of during the news interview. Yeah. Of him giving preferential treatment to people that he knows. That I mean, that's that's such a tricky one because it's like in in Lawrence Fishburne's place we would all do the same thing. Right. Like, and, and it's like, he's giving, <laughs> he's giving preferential treatment to someone he knows at the cost of his own life. You know, it's not like he's, he's getting an extra vaccine for this kid. He's, you know, using up his own. Yeah. Um, so we do. And like Jude Law's story, you know, he's, he's out on bail, but he is like, like, going to be tried like there there is some closure there and with Marion Cotillard there's just we can make guesses about what she's gonna do but it did feel less um yeah less kind of finished off I I get that I like in my mind I I think of the movie as a movie about the disease and how it impacts all these people and in terms of that framework her arc has kind of come to a conclusion um sure so so seeing what happens next is kind of beside the point uh but also that's all uh um unsatisfying yeah but movies don't necessarily have to i mean i i know that i was just arguing for for this but like <laughs> i also the the only reason it bugged me was because it felt like hers was the only story that didn't have some kind of cap and that felt unbalanced not the fact that it didn't have a cap that's that's fair that makes sense if that makes sense yeah totally um anything else on this one or should we jump on over to uh kingdom of needle and bone i think we should transition to kingdom of needle and bone if that's all right with you so kingdom of needle and bone is a 2018 novella written by mira grant which is the pen name of shannon mcguire it is the pen name she uses to write her sci-fi dystopia um, kind of kind of virology books. Listeners to the podcast may recognize it. Um, 
as uh may recognize her as the author the author who wrote um feed the zombie book we read a while back um it should come as no shock to anybody that i love mcguire uh, i love her mirror grant imprint as well um but specifically kingdom of needle and bone is the story of a pandemic that starts with a girl at disney world Lisa is the name of an eight-year-old girl who wakes up one morning on vacation not feeling well, but since she is at Disney World, she decides that she's going to pretend that she is feeling fine so that she can still get to go see uh, the park. Um, and by the end of the day, she is in the hospital, and several days later, she is dead uh, with a new kind of super measles called Morris's disease. <laughs> Named after her. Uh, uh, what happens... Yes, Lisa Morris. So she is our patient zero. Um, what happens next is the reaction of the world to this this rapidly spreading uh, virus and the actions of one Dr. Eliz Isabella Golly, who is Lisa's aunt, uh, who realizes that the only, only way to defend against this superbug is to collect as many uninfected and unexposed people as possible and completely isolate them from the world like private island level isolation mm -hmm. um, because she from her previous work as a virologist and immunologist she realizes that the only way to protect again protect the, the future of the human race is to ensure that there are people who have never been exposed to it um, and never make sure that they never are. Uh, and, and that's because of the unique nature of this disease, which is that it basically destroys the body's ability to form immuno memories, um, immune system memories. So it destroys existing immune system memories and it prevents the body from creating new ones, uh, which basically means we can't vaccinate, we can't do herd immunity, we can't, like, you know... Every year, the, the the common cold is going to be, you know, just as bad. Well, and that was something that... So, um, McGuire is, um, is, is also fascinated by disease science. And that um, immunoamnesia or whatever is mm -hmm. something that actual measles does, like, right. to a lesser extent. Right. Um, so everything, everything in this book is kind of extrapolated from real science, uh, and it's got a banger of an ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Pete, in one of your emails before, while we were still setting up, uh, when we were going to record, record, you said that you had capital T thoughts about this book, and and I would love to hear them. Yeah. So I listened to this on audiobook. Uh, it was about three hours. Uh, got the audiobook for free on Hoopla, uh, plugging library stuff right now. Um, Heck yeah. And uh, in a three-hour audiobook, I think I heard the phrase bod bodily autonomy used eight billion times. Uh, as well as the phrase herd immunity. Um, this might be a case of just like preaching to the choir because I am I am all on board with vaccinations. Obviously, I, I honestly think they should be mandatory for anyone who can get them. Um, and Mira Grant is clearly writing with that in mind. She's clearly writing like she this came out in December 2018. So it's, you know, um, being written and, and published when there's a lot of discussion about um anti-vaxxers and all the rest of it she's coming at it with an angle 
I would argue, the correct angle, but it was, it felt overwrought and, like, didactic, uh, maybe pedantic, uh, not pedantic, let's, let's go didactic, um, like, how much he was hammering these ideas home, felt like lots of straw men being tossed up just so that she could then tear them down, um, I really loved the, like, the world building, I loved the idea of the virus, I loved the solution, um, so, like, the, the science-y part of it was great. The billion conversations about herd immunity and bodily autonomy really got old. Uh, and then I, frankly, hated the ending. I thought that was... It It, <laughs> it retroactively made uh, Isabel, uh, Dr. Gawley's, um internal monologue and character motivation make more sense because throughout the entire book she's, like sort of self-flagellating in a way that I found both annoying and bizarre. Um, so the the end retroactively made that make more sense, but also was some f bleep. Uh, yeah, the, the end was nonsense. Um, so I don't disagree with you about the, the um, bodily autonomy straw man. One of the issues that I had with this book um, which I should say I, I really enjoyed. Um, but one of the issues I had with this book, book is that I don't think there is actually a discussion to be had between, um, like, like there's a, um, there's a, there's a conflict when people are talking about, there's a conflict in the book between when people are talking about making immunizations, like, required, mm -hmm. that that would, um, that would harm arguments for things like abortion access mm -hmm. i don't i don't think that's a real conflict because because if i want to get an abortion that affects only me mm -hmm. if i don't get vaccinated that affects everyone yes so that that seemed like a like a that seemed like kind of a silly thing for us to be spending so much time on but i i also don't know if that, if that is like, is that actually a, is that actually an argument that people are having? Like if, if we restrict, if we, if we say that people must vaccinate their children, is that also, does that also put a needle or um, a needle, <laughs> a, a nail in the coffin of um, like, reproductive health care like I mean, are those I, two things actually being linked in... i'm i'm certain that anti-abortion activists would try to make that link um i'm like i could easily see this as being like something that like she had been hearing um i i spend no time on anti-vax or message boards or anything i don't know anyone who's anti-vax um so it could be that these are like actual arguments that are being had and that's and so she is like engaged in a discourse that I'm just not aware of. Uh, but since I'm not aware of that discourse, it felt weird to be spending so much ink arguing about it. Yeah, especially when she doesn't have all that much real estate to be working with. I mean, I mean, a lot happens in the like less than 200 pages of this book. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did feel that there were times when she, she was wasting her real estate talking about things that I did not think were germane or necessarily needed to be taking up this much time in the conversation or germy <laughs> <laughs> oh, what did you think of the ending i 
had to read it twice before I really understood what was going on. Um, I, I'm torn on whether or not I feel like it invalidates Isabel, Isabella's point. So basically we learn that the Morris's disease is a super bug that was designed and built by Isabella. When that's when she was a virologist, when she was a virologist. So like, it is it is not naturally occurring it is directly f- from something that she did and i i don't i'm kind of undecided about whether or not i feel that that invalidates her kind of point about like this is the result of things that people have like the, that this is the the result of the anti-vaxxer movement like i I am un mm. I am unsure about whether or not I feel that these two concepts can coexist. Right. One that anti-vaxxing caused our vulnerability to this, but also that this is that the pandemic is the natural outcome of having anti-vaxxers like that exist. Well, it's kind of like anti-vaxxer like you're you're I hadn't thought about it this way, but you're totally right that those two, like, it's either this is a superbug made in a lab, and so it wouldn't matter if if anti-vaxxers had their way or not, because uh, this was just going to steamroll everyone. Um, or, B, wow, this wouldn't have happened uh, if there had been enough herd immunity and vaccines, because this was just a naturally occurring bug. Um because like once we bring in like lab lab grown super viruses, that feels like an entirely different conversation that we should be having. Um, like like there's an entire another book to be written about like the morality of that, which just isn't here because we're spending all the time on on vaccines. She actually so I'm I'm reading a short story collection by her right now called Laughter at the Academy, and one of the short stories in it is sort of the like is this kind of writ large like the main character in that is a scientist who deliberately and maliciously creates superbug strains of like measles and polio and Mm -hmm. the black death and then has them strategically released all over the world um in order and the point of that story is to show how if if we followed like if we listened to Virologists, and if we followed recommended protocol about like quarantine and isolation and all of those things, that that we we had the power to kind of stem the destruction from these viruses. But because the character knows that humanity won't react in the sensible way, she is aware that she's basically releasing like Armageddon on the world. Mm. Hmm. And that story is almost more effective because the point of that one is to show the disparity between the expert's advice and what people choose to do. And I don't know that that point is as salient or not salient, but as clear in kingdom of needle and bone. Yeah. Um, One, one thing that I was thinking of while listening to this and also thinking about uh, the other book of hers, I've read feed um, a lot of her, those two books both seem to be about how people fail, but structures don't. Um, like, 
you, you know, the, the government is still going on in, in feed. And in this, like, the government responds successfully and whatnot. Uh, so it's it's failures of individuals, um, even individuals in large groups, but still, like, individuals, whereas the institutions, I guess, uh, don't fail. Or, or at least, like, you know, they don't collapse. They don't, um, they, they I... respond appropriately. Uh, the only the only thing I'm going to interrupt you just for a sec because mm-hmm. I I think in feed it's not necessarily the government that doesn't fail I think it's society sure sure because we 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 do I think it, it's important in feed that the government is still corrupt and that news media doesn't work. like right. I, I think it's more of a a, a grassroots humanitarian unfail like not failing mm-hmm. rather than um specifically like sure sure but 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 in that too it's like the government that's the only knit that's the only knit i'm gonna pick right that's that that, that's fair um and i guess what i'm what i'm getting at is that here in this current crisis we're seeing the opposite again like what we were talking about with contagion it's that the institutions many of the institutions are um many are succeeding but many of them are absolutely not succeeding um and again it's it's individuals who are who are absolutely failing but also who are rising to the challenge um so that's, you know, it's, yeah, it's, I, it's just sort of like an interesting lens um, that she seems generally, you know, optimistic about um, institutions being able to respond correctly. I, th- I think that what we're seeing now in our reality is actually much closer to what, what happens in feed. Mm-hmm. Like, the, like this whole idea of... Um, not being able to get accurate news reporting from the news. So like we go to trusted people on Twitter or like this, like not being able to rely on um, the government or our healthcare systems to like get us the supplies we need. So people are making them themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I I think our situation is much more comparable uh, to feed. Right. Like how, like how people react to feed. Although hope and, I mean, I, I honestly, I've spent a long time thinking about how our society is going to be changed mm-hmm. after this, which is also something that is that she's very concerned with in um in feed the the aftermath. Right, and and again, all slightly less so here, be, because she's she's got a much narrower lens here, I think, than in feed. Oh, true. Yeah. Although I would totally read a sequel to this that's set like 10 or 15 years into the future. Like uh, post uh, uh, Dr. Gawley's death, maybe um, even like 20 years in the future. Yeah, that I would be yeah. interested in in the ideas she could play with there as long as we weren't still rehashing the same arguments that we're having in this one. Like, again, her, yeah, her no, world building would... is so good um, that I, I would like to see. I think it would have to be it would have to be like the end result of the decisions made as fallout from this uh this book right so whatever the decision on mandatory vaccinations is there should be a decision right um anything else you want to talk about for this one or should we wrap up i think that's about all i got cool all right well yeah that is uh gonna do it for us then today Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you enjoyed the homework that you did. 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere you can get fine podcasts. Uh, make sure to rate and review us, and please do tell your friends. As always, that is one of your homework assignments for next week. That's how the show can spread in a viral manner. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at DYDYH Podcast. You can find us on Facebook uh, if you search Did You Do Your Homework? And you can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. Uh, Martha, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on the internet at Magical Martha in all of the places. Um, um, you can also listen to the other podcast that I record with Pete's wife, Marin, uh, that releases on this same feed on Opposing Wednesdays, where we watch, watch rom-coms that are streaming on various streaming platforms and then dissect them and occasionally rehab them for your listening pleasure. And what's that called? Uh, love ya. That cool. would be helpful if I told people <laughs> what the actual like name, name of my it. show was. <laughs> Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, uh, politics, pop culture, penguins wandering around the Shed Aquarium. Uh, you know, it's so, so good. Because we're trying, so to, good. <laughs> trying to get some, some good uh, stuff into the, the feed as well. Um, next episode, we're going to be talking about isolation, uh, both individual isolation and sort of isolated communities. Uh, so Martha, what are you assigning for that? I'm assigning the 2009 Sam Rockwell movie Moon, which is currently streaming on Netflix, and I have never seen. Ooh, I did not know that. Um, I know you didn't. That's why I said it. <laughs> uh, I will say that this is a but Kevin Spacey movie, um, because he is the other... Oh, really? Yeah. Um yeah sorry uh it's his voice not his body but still um that's easier yeah i don't have to look at him yeah exactly um i all right great uh i am assigning the 1982 uh john carpenter horror movie the thing which martha has never seen either so i guess this is two movies that martha has never seen that i have uh which Hooray! will make for an exciting <laughs> exciting next episode i think <laughs> well and we we know in advance that you like both of them so. yes yes this is true it's been a long time since i've seen moon so i'm i'm excited for the opportunity to revisit that one all right and uh that's going to do it for us for this week um thank you all so much for listening we'll talk to you in two weeks class dismissed talk about maybe setting up a, a midsummer i'll pitch midsummer tomorrow yeah there we because go because i i feel very strongly that that is a movie she would enjoy it just got marketed so hard as a, a horror movie and i just i really don't think that it is 